Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom begins a new eight-part series titled, Your Only Reasonable Response to the Gospel. He'll be teaching through Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Here we learn of the transforming power of the gospel of grace. These two verses introduce us to the last major section of Paul's letter, and they serve as the foundation or the ground of all of the practical commands that will follow. They provide the primary and fundamental way that believers can apply the gospel to everyday Christian discipleship. These are some of the most familiar and most often quoted passages in all of the New Testament. And as we'll soon discover, that's for very good reason. Before we begin this new series, though, here's Tom with some opening thoughts. It's important to remember where we are in Paul's letter to the Romans. The theme of this great letter is the gospel of God. In chapters 1 through 4, we find the gospel explained. It's justification by faith alone. In chapters 5 through 8, the gospel experienced. In chapters 9 through 11, the gospel defended as he defends the gospel against those questions that would arise. And then beginning in chapter 12 and through the end of the book, he deals with the gospel applied. Here is how we are to live out all that we've learned. And really, these two verses, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, are the very hinge on which this entire book swings. And so let's enjoy what the Lord has to teach us together. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's discover more from God's Word today on The Word Unleashed. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for the first time in our study of the book of Romans to the 12th chapter. And we come to a pivot point, a a real turning point in this great letter of Paul's to the churches in Rome. Now, before we dive into the trees again, let me back up and remind you of the forest, remind you of what we're dealing with in this letter. The theme of this letter is the gospel of God, and at the center of God's gospel is justification by faith alone. Let me remind you of an outline of this letter. He begins in the first 17 verses with a simple introduction and greeting of the people to whom he wrote. And then he gets into the heart of his epistle. The first major section of the letter to the Romans I've entitled, The Gospel Explained, Justification by Faith Alone. It begins in chapter 1, verse 18, runs all the way through the end of chapter 4 as he lays out the truth that we can be declared right before God based solely on the work of Jesus Christ received by faith alone. The second section of this letter, I've entitled The Gospel Experienced. Chapters 5 through 8 describe for us the effects of justification. He begins in the early verses of chapter 5 with the immediate effects of justification. We now have peace with God. We stand in grace. We have a hope of seeing and sharing God's glory and so forth. And the end of chapter 5, he lays out how this can be true. How can a righteous God declare unrighteous sinners to be righteous? That seems to contradict everything God has said about what a righteous judge should do. And he explains in the end of chapter 5, that's because he appointed Christ as our representative. And having appointed him as our legal representative, 
we get the credit for everything that Jesus has done. He goes on in chapter 6 to explain our relationship to sin. In chapter 7, our relationship to the law. And then in chapter 8, he ends this section by reminding us of the eternal certainty of our faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The third section of Paul's letter is in chapters 9 through 11. I've entitled it, The Gospel Defended, because it raises the question, if this is the true gospel, Paul, then why is it that so few Jewish people have believed in their Messiah and His gospel? And he explains in these three chapters that we've just finished our study of, the realities of election, how that relates to Israel and God's promises that are still yet unfulfilled. That brings us this morning to the fourth section of Paul's letter, the gospel applied. Here we learn of the transforming power of the gospel of grace. Begins in chapter 12, verse 1, runs through chapter 15, verse 13, and then the last part of the letter I've just entitled Conclusion, where Paul describes his intention in writing, his purposes in visiting them, and he greets a number of folks there in chapter 16. What I want you to see is here in Romans, as Paul so often does in his letters, he ends this letter in chapters 12 through 15, the heart of the letter anyway, by applying the truth very practically. He wants us to understand this, if you have come to truly understand the message of the gospel, if you have repented and believed in Jesus Christ, if you have experienced the effects of the gospel, then you will personally and practically apply the gospel to life. If you have been justified, you will live in obedience and be increasingly sanctified by the work of the Spirit. Come to this morning, just the first two verses of chapter 12 are in reality the kind of hinge on which this letter swings. Like Ephesians, the first half of Romans is about what God has done. The second half is about what we are to do in response. Romans 1 through 11 contains only a handful of imperatives or commands. In fact, the very first command in the book of Romans doesn't come until chapter 6, verse 13. These 11 chapters are primarily instruction. Paul explains why we need the gospel. He explains exactly what the gospel is, and then he explains why we can have confidence in that gospel that we have come to believe. Chapters 1 through 11 lay out the indicatives of the gospel. Chapters 12 through 15 lay out the imperatives of the gospel. Here's how the great Puritan commentator Matthew Henry described it. He said, the apostle, having confirmed the prime fundamental doctrines of Christianity, comes to press the principal duties. We mistake our religion if we look upon it only as a system of notions and a guide to speculation. No, it is a practical religion that tends to the right ordering of the life. It is designed not only to inform our judgments, but to reform our hearts and lives. He goes on to say, Paul has been discoursing on justification by faith and the riches of free grace and the pledges and assurances we have of the glory that is to be revealed. Hence, 
carnal libertines. He means those people who want to believe the gospel or say they do, but who want to live the way they want. He says carnal libertines would be apt to infer, therefore we may live as we please and walk in the way of our hearts and the sight of our eyes. Henry says, now this does not follow. The faith that justifies is a faith that works by love. And there is no other way to heaven but the way of holiness and obedience. Therefore, what God has joined together, justification and sanctification, let no man put asunder. That's really where chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 come in. These two verses introduce us to the last major section of Paul's letter, and they serve as the foundation or the ground of all of the practical commands that will follow. They provide the primary and fundamental way that we can apply the gospel to everyday Christian discipleship. This is one of the most familiar and most often quoted passages in all of the New Testament, and as we will discover, for very good reason. Let's read it together for the first time. Romans chapter 12, you follow along in your copy of the Scripture, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable. In these two verses, we are accosted by this very simple theme. The only reasonable response to the salvation that you have received in and through the gospel, the only reasonable response is to give yourself body and soul to God. The only reasonable response to the gospel, if you're a Christian, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, the only reasonable response to that claim, to that profession, is to give yourself body and soul to God. It's a call for radical, total commitment to God. Now, in these verses, Paul provides us with two insights into exactly how it is that we should respond to what God has done in saving us through the gospel. Let's consider these two insights together. Paul begins by pointing out what, what I would call the grounds for a life of total commitment to God. The grounds for a life of total commitment to God. In other words, he begins by explaining to us the motivation what should drive us to do what he admonishes us here to do? Great leaders have always been concerned with what motivates people to action, and they try to seize on those motivations as levers to cause people to begin to act. Even the secular leaders of the world understand that. Napoleon Bonaparte said, a soldier will fight long and hard for a bit of colored ribbon. He understood what motivated his soldiers. He understood that his soldiers would fight and even give their lives for the recognition and honor that came with the medals that they would earn and receive as a result of their valor. Winston Churchill, one of my favorite characters from history, 
motivated the British people during World War II with a similar call to duty and honor. In one of his most famous speeches, Churchill said this, if we fail, meaning in our struggle against Hitler and Nazi Germany, if we fail, then the whole world, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. Macaulay, in his work, The Lays of Ancient Rome, puts this call to duty and honor in the mouth of a, of a captain named Horatius. Then outspake brave Horatius, the captain of the gate, to every man upon this earth, death cometh soon or late. And how can man die better than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers and the temples of his gods? Motivating people to action. Your motive to spiritual action matters. Paul understood that. And so that is how he begins this call to apply the gospel. And that is with our motives, with our motivations. He provides the grounds for why we should act. And this is important because people who claim to be connected to the Christian faith try to live righteous lives for all the wrong reasons, on the basis of all the wrong motivations. For example, test your own motivations. There are people who want to live out some form of the Christian life, and if you ask them why, they'll say something like this, because in so doing, I will earn my own salvation or I will earn God's grace, His favor on my life. Maybe that's part of your thinking as others are motivated in a way that they would say, you know, I do what I do. I try to live a good life and live a righteous life because I like living that way. In the end, it's still all about them. Others would say, you know, I do it because it, it makes me enjoy a happier, more fulfilled life. Again, all about me. Because, and if I hear this one more time, I think I'm going to get sick, because it makes me proud of myself. Others are driven by fear. I, I live the way I do because if I don't, I don't know exactly what God's going to do to me. But what should be our motive in living for God, in offering ourselves as we're admonished here in this first verse? You see, your motives matter to God. Two people can do exactly the same thing, one of them be acceptable to God and the other not, based solely on their motives. Why should you respond to Paul's extraordinary exhortation in these verses? Well, in the first part of verse 1, we discover three compelling grounds for action. Three compelling grounds notice them together. First of all, there is the exhortation of Scripture. Therefore, I urge you, brethren. The Greek word that's translated urge here has a wide range of meaning throughout Greek literature. In the New Testament, it can mean one of three things. It can mean to plead or to beg. It can mean to exhort, or it can mean to comfort or encourage. Here in this passage, 
It's the second of those meanings. It means to exhort, to urge strongly. This urging, this exhortation is somewhere between a request and a command. It's an exhortation that comes with the authority of an apostle. In other words, with the authority of God's Word. Paul is here claiming an obedience that we are obligated to give. He is not demanding, but he is exhorting with authority. This exhortation is the hinge, as I've said, between the gospel indicatives in the first 11 chapters and the gospel imperatives in the chapters to come. Paul appeals to us, he exhorts us with the authority of Scripture to obey and follow what he writes here. Paul wasn't saying, you know what, this would be a good idea if you did this. That's not what urge means. It is with the the same authority as the rest of Scripture. This is within the commands of Scripture. It's not a command technically, but it is practically. It is an exhortation we cannot refuse. There's a second grounds for responding to Paul's appeal here, and it's our relationship to God. Notice again verse 1, therefore I urge you, notice the word brethren. You see, this command to present your body and all of the commands in the chapters to come are only for those who can call fellow Christians their brothers and sisters and therefore can rightly call God their Father. These passages and this command in specific is for those who are already Christians. Obeying God's commands is not how you earn salvation. You know, everywhere Christianity has gone, there are people who who like the ethics of Jesus, who like the ethics of the Christian life, and they try to live out those ethics without having first experienced the radical transformation that Jesus calls being born again, experiencing regeneration. It's impossible. It's impossible to present yourself to God in this way unless you have first become one of His children by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. And how does that happen? It happens by your repentance and faith in the work of Jesus Christ. You see, the simple fact that you can legitimately call God your Father is one of the compelling grounds for obeying this exhortation. This ultimately comes from your Father as it comes to the rest of his children. The third grounds, and this is really the primary focus here in verse 1, is the mercies of God. Notice how verse 1 begins, therefore. Paul wants us to know that all of the commands he's about to give us, beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, running all the way to chapter 15, verse 13, are built on the theology of chapters 1 through 11. And in case you're not sure of that, Paul goes on to make that even clearer. Notice how he puts it, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Ultimately, all that God has done to accomplish our salvation can be placed under that heading, the mercies of God. Paul's already done that. In fact, this is the primary way he refers to our salvation in chapters 9 through 11. Go back to some verses that have become very familiar to us. Romans chapter 9, verse 15. He says to Moses, 
I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it, that is election and ultimately salvation, does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So everything God does in saving us is ultimately brought under that head, God having mercy. Look at chapter 11. Verse 30, this is how Paul finishes the first 11 chapters. He says in verse 30, For just as you Gentiles once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of Jewish disobedience, so these, that is the Jewish people, also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. And then he finishes with this summary comprehensive statement. For God has shut up all, Jew and Gentile, in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all, that is to both Jews and Gentiles. But notice again, he takes everything that includes our salvation and puts it under the heading of mercy. So the exhortation then to present your body to God by the mercies of God, means that he is looking back to the massive argument that has already been unfolded in this letter. Mercies is in the plural because that's a Hebraism. It's used that way in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word. But it's also used because it points to the many different manifestations of God's mercy. His mercies we sing about. Paul says, as the practical application of all the mercies of God that I have written about in the gospel, I urge you, I exhort you with the authority of Scripture itself. Now, I can't just leave this without giving you some idea of what's involved here, because I think we read that expression, the mercies of God, and if we're not careful, it just kind of becomes uh, everyday pedestrian, almost spiritual mumble to us. What are the mercies of God? I wanted to understand what the mercies of God are that we have already seen unfolded in the book of Romans. I'm going to give you, this isn't a comprehensive list, this is just a representative list of the mercies of God that Paul unfolded in the first 11 chapters. First of all, God revealed Himself in creation, chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. He made Himself known his eternal power, his divine nature through the creation. He spared our lives in spite of our sin, chapter 1, verse 32. He filled our lives with goodness to call us to repentance, chapter 2, verse 4. He wrote the work of his law on our hearts so that our consciences would show us our need of the gospel, chapter 2. He gave us his written word as well, Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he made a way to save us through the gospel. Chapter 3, verse 21 and following, as he unfolds the gospel of Jesus Christ, he made that gospel available to both Jews and Gentiles, and he justified us as a gift by his grace. Chapter 3, verse 24, he declared us right with him solely as a gift by his grace. He sacrificed his own son to propitiate, that is to satisfy his justice against our sins. Chapter 3, verse 25. He justifies everyone who has faith in Jesus. He justifies us not by works of ours, but by faith alone. That's the message of the entire fourth chapter. 
He has given us, chapter 5, verse 1, peace with him. The war is over. He has made us to stand in a position of his grace. He has given us hope of both seeing the glory of God and of sharing the glory of God. He loves us and demonstrated that love undeniably at the cross. He will rescue us from future wrath. He has fully reconciled us to himself. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of a series titled, Your Only Reasonable Response to the Gospel. Tom will bring you part two on our next broadcast, and we invite you to join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our email address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. That's 1-877-577-WORD. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. We thank you for listening. The Word Unleashed exists because God, in His Word, has given you every spiritual resource you need to grow in Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that the power of God's Word be unleashed in your life.